Welcome to The Deduction, a podcast from the Tax Foundation, your independent guide to the complicated world of tax and economics. On this episode, Tax Foundation Vice President of State Projects Jared Walzak and Senior Policy Analyst Catherine Lawhead will be looking at 2020 state ballot initiatives and what they might mean for the future of state tax policy. And now here's today's host, Jared Walzak. Well, thank you, Dan. Uh, You know, on Election Day, when most people are paying attention to the returns in the presidential race and congressional races, those of us who care about tax policy are... Okay, let's be honest, we're following that too. But we're also looking at something else. Um, We're going to be paying attention to a lot of important tax policy questions that are on ballots across the country. Uh, There aren't quite as many this year as there have been in the past, and that's really because of the pandemic. Uh, Legislatures sometimes refer these ballots uh, measures to the voters, and a lot of legislative sessions were cut short. Also, you have ballot measures that get on the ballot because of citizen-initiated petition drives, and those petition signature gathering efforts were also often curtailed. So we don't have as many this year as we do in many years, but there are still some really important ballot measures on tax issues across the country. We don't have time today to talk about every last one of them. We don't want to talk about all of them, but we would like to introduce you to a few of the more significant ones to talk through those, uh, give you an idea of what's out there on ballots across the country. And we hope that you'll join us on our website, taxfoundation.org, on election night and following. We'll be tracking these results. We'll be talking about what all of these mean. Uh, but I'm joined by my colleague, Catherine Lawhead, and we are going to talk about some of these major measures. You know, it's always interesting with tax policy on the ballot. Uh, lawmakers have a kind of fraught relationship with these. On the one hand, Legislatively referred ballot measures are a way of deferring directly to the electorate some of the tough political questions that lawmakers don't always want to make themselves. Do you want to raise taxes? Do you want to let someone else decide that for you? Uh, This is also very often the case on things like legalization of new markets. Uh, Marijuana taxes, which also involves legalization, is routinely kicked over to the voters rather than having that decision made by the legislature itself. But on the other hand, When voters do this, it can tie lawmakers' hands. Often they have very little ability to tinker with the details. Change rates later uh, depends on the language, but they may not be able to set a lot of the administrative details or work it into the budget the way they normally would. So, you know, this process that's sort of extra legislative can be challenging in some cases. We do have some really interesting ballot measures to talk about, so I want to get directly to those. And we're thinking about them today, I think, in a couple of broad categories. The first one is changes to income tax rates. We have three states where that's on the ballot, Arizona and Illinois with income tax increases and Colorado with an income tax cut. Uh, Catherine, tell us a little, if you would, about what's on the ballot in Arizona. Yeah. So the income tax ballot measure in Arizona is Prop 208. It's a proposal to increase income taxes on high earners in order to siphon off that funding specifically for education. And we've seen a lot of similar ballot measures in recent years that specifically tie income tax increases or other tax increases to education funding. So it's not surprising to see another one of those again in 2020. But basically what this measure would do is it would create an additional income tax bracket with a new top rate of 8%. And currently, Arizona actually only has four brackets and the top rate is very reasonable. It's only 4.5%. So creating a fifth income tax bracket and then raising that rate would be a really significant tax increase for a state that has worked really hard over the past two decades to move away from high taxes. Arizona has really 
created a name for itself as one of those um, states that people can move to from California if they're looking for a lower tax alternative. But this would reverse course on a lot of that. I think you raise a good point there. It's a state that has really identified itself as having a mountain climate and a mountain tax climate. And you've certainly seen snowbirds from across the country relocate to Arizona or spend some of their time in the state. Uh, you've seen people from California moving there. It's been this destination. I was looking at some numbers the other day. The state's seen a 45% increase in tax revenue in real terms. We're talking inflation-adjusted terms since the Great Recession. And that's enormous compared to most states. It also includes a 9.5% increase in the previous fiscal year alone. That's twice the revenue that Prop 208 is intended to deliver. Uh, so I think that's really significant that this is a state that has seen significant in-migration in recent years. And at least some of that is due to the state's really competitive tax rates. It's a good place to live with competitive taxes. And some of their neighbors are doing the same thing. You know, you look at Nevada obviously has no individual income tax. Colorado has a low flat rate income tax. And we'll be discussing in a moment, there's a proposal to lower it further. Uh, Utah has a rate below 5%. New Mexico has a rate below 5%. Three neighbors below 5%, one neighbor with no income tax. The exception, of course, is California, top rate of 13.3%. That's been the state that they've been targeting really for about two decades. Another thing, Catherine, that I noticed that's interesting about this is a lack of inflation indexing. I don't know if you had looked at that, but uh, they, we, we see here that they're not indexing that top bracket. What does that mean in the long run? Yeah, that's one of the really problematic things about how this is structured is the top rate would not be indexed for inflation, but all the other brackets are. So that means that if that top rate now kicks in at $250,000 for single filers and double that for married couples, as inflation rises, more and more families will be kind of swept up into that higher top income tax rate, um, even if their income is just increasing at face value, but the buying power of it isn't. And that's one of those things that's really unclear if that was just a mistake in how the ballot measure was written or if it was intentional to capture more and more taxpayers every year. But that's really concerning that so many taxpayers, even middle income taxpayers, would be swept up into that top rate. Yeah, and certainly many small businesses, since small businesses pay through the individual income tax. And I think maybe a broader issue too is just this is dedicated education, as you said, and volatility in the higher income brackets is very significant. Uh, this is where you see capital losses coming in during a recession. This is where you see a lot more mobility. Uh, when you look at high incomes, this is where you see dramatic swings in revenue. Some years it's amazing. Some years it's really bad. And volatility is not what you're looking for in school finance, which is one reason why income taxes aren't generally the way you fund schools, and especially uh, a piece of the income tax that's focused on the highest earners. I mean, California has learned this lesson. Some of their capital gains income and some of their other high income um, taxation is actually separated out in the fund and put towards uh, long-term projects that they can smooth out over time rather than relying on it for year-to-year -year funding. Uh, you know, In this context, I think it makes sense to also look at what neighboring Colorado is doing. Over there, we have a Colorado Proposition 116. Uh, Catherine, maybe you can walk us through a little about what that one's doing. Yeah, so this is the only income tax reduction proposal on the ballot this November. 
And it would bring Colorado's already low and competitive flat income tax rate down even further from 4.63% to 4.55%. And so that would actually even be retroactive to the beginning of 2020. So taxpayers would benefit from that relief starting this year in the midst of this pandemic and recession. So it would be very beneficial to individuals and families and businesses alike anyone who pays the income tax in Colorado would benefit from this lower rate. And it's actually been supported by people on both sides of the aisle. We actually see Democratic Governor Jared Polis um, sounding supportive of the idea of an income tax reduction. It's something he campaigned on and um, something he's been you know, advocating for over his time in office. And one thing that's notable here is just the state is expected to close out the current fiscal year with about $2 billion in reserves. So the state economy is actually doing um, pretty well compared to some other states and a little better than expected. So they can certainly afford an income tax reduction. And that's really interesting because obviously, like every other state, Colorado is experiencing some uh, losses due to the COVID-19 pandemic. In fact, they're expecting an 11.5% decline in general fund collections in fiscal year 2021 compared to 20. And yet still, they anticipate having these surplus revenues. This has been a state that's experienced significant revenue growth. And even with these adjustments, they expect, as you said, to close uh, you know, the fiscal year with $2 billion in reserves. And in fiscal year 2022, they expect $3 billion more to be able to spend or save than they had budgeted for fiscal 2021. That's a very impressive place to be. And uh, clearly, lawmakers on both sides of the aisle have expressed some interest in returning at least a portion of that to the uh, taxpayers. That is not, of course, the case in Illinois. Uh, Illinois is a state that has perpetually struggled with revenues. Uh, partially, this has been a spending habit, I think. This is a state that always has billions of dollars in unpaid bills, literally bills they're just not paying as a way to balance their budget. Uh, they have about $8 billion of those right now. Uh, one of the proposed solutions to this is the Illinois Fair Tax, which is uh, a graduated rate income tax for Illinois. They currently have a flat rate tax. It imposes a rate structure um, through a separate measure that has been passed by the legislature in anticipation of this uh, ballot measure, a constitutional amendment going through. And it's really structurally uh, quite interesting, quite distinct from almost anything else we see anywhere in the country. Uh, Catherine, tell us a little about what you're seeing in Illinois. Yeah, so this is something Illinoisans have heard about for a long time now. It was a campaign promise of Governor J.B. Pritzker, who took office in 2019. And so this is something the governor has been wanting to do for a while, but the path to the ballot uh, was a bit of a, a long process. It started back in May 2019 when the General Assembly voted to refer this to the ballot to voters this November. And then the next month, they passed the rates that they wanted to see um, adopted. And so the governor ended up signing those. They look slightly different than the rates the governor initially proposed. They're actually higher, a higher top rate, higher corporate rate than what the governor himself even proposed. And so those are the rates that would take effect in January if this measure is approved by voters. Now, the ballot measure itself simply amends the Constitution to remove the requirement that income taxes in Illinois be levied at a single flat rate. And so the rates that were adopted by the legislature and the governor are not set in stone. They could really change at any time. And so that's something taxpayers will want to be a bit wary of. Um, right now, the rates would change from one rate to six rates, and the top rate is 7.99%. Um, but in the future, those could be adjusted. 
And then on the corporate side of things, the tax rate would increase um, to a base rate from going up from 7 to 7.99%. But in Illinois, they have what's called the personal property replacement tax. And that's an additional tax paid by businesses on the same income tax base. So really, Illinois' corporate tax would go up to 10.49%. And then the tax on other pass-through small businesses would increase up to 9.49%. It would be a tax increase on lots of businesses, lots of families. And that personal property replacement tax, that PPRT, um, it's really important because, as you said, uh, a lot of businesses, small businesses, are paying through the individual income tax. That's how that generally works, even though I don't know if that's always apparent to people. But basically, anything that's not a C corporation, usually that income is passing through to the individual income tax returns of the owners of the company, whether it's one or two or quite a few owners. And here, you know, that 7.99% rate becomes 9.49%. And of course, this is on high income returns, but that's also where small business ownership takes place. You know, more than 93% of all pass-through business income is claimed on returns with more than $250,000 in pass-through income. Over half of it is on returns with more than a million. Uh, So you are hitting a lot of small businesses and small businesses are responsible for 45% of the employment in Illinois. That's not unusual. Usually it's 40 to 50%, but that's a lot of people who are employed by businesses. They'll be seeing a significant tax increase if this goes through. And of course, this would be trending in the opposite direction of a lot of neighboring states. Uh, You've had income tax cuts recently in Indiana, in Iowa, uh, in Kentucky, Missouri. A lot of states in the region have made significant cuts. The corporate rate in Missouri is now 4% as of this year. In Kentucky, as of a couple of years ago, it became 5%. Indiana cut its this year and it's down to 5.25% as opposed to 10.49% proposed in Illinois. Uh, Indiana's individual rate, flat 3.23%. Kentucky's at 5%. Missouri's at 5.4%. Um, Michigan is uh, at 4.25%, not a recent change, but 4.25% uh, compared to 7.99 or for small businesses, 9.49. So some really big differences here. And also really interesting structural distinctions that you don't see anywhere else. Uh, so there's something called a recapture provision. Basically, what this means is that when you get up into that top, those top two rates, all of your previous income is also taxed at your highest rate. That's not normally how marginal taxation works. You know, you pay one rate for a certain range of income and another rate on the next rate of income. There's never a point where earning an additional dollar means that your tax liability increases more than enough to wipe out your additional earnings. Here, that actually happens because the new top rate applies to all of your income. There's only two other states that have anything at all like that, uh, New York and Connecticut. And this is actually a little more aggressive than what we see in uh, those states. And then you you also have a marriage penalty, which you had alluded to in previous states. You you have indexing issues. It's not indexed for inflation. There's a marriage penalty. All of these things that most modern income taxes avoid. Uh, These are developments that almost all states have moved towards in the last three or four decades. And Illinois is, I think, consciously not adopting them, maybe to squeeze out a little bit of additional revenue. But it's a surprising move, something we don't see in uh, many other cases. So a lot of interesting things on income taxes, which is a really major area. But let's move to property taxes a little. You know, this, of course, is a local tax primarily. Uh, uh, Property taxes are the largest source of revenue for localities across the country. And there are several interesting and really opposite uh, measures in the states. I'm thinking particularly of uh, Proposition 15 in California and Amendment B in Colorado, which 
yeah, Colorado is sort of attempting to reverse the sort of issue that California is creating in my mind. So Proposition 15, if you want to talk a little about that, um, you know, where did this come from? What's the what's going on in Prop 15? Yeah, well, this all started with the existing property tax situation in California, which, of course, everyone knows about Prop 13. It was adopted by voters back in 1978, and it introduced a really significant rate limit and assessment limit into California's property tax system, where rates can only increase by 1% and assessed values can only, can't grow faster than 2% per year. And that's for both, both residential and commercial property. But this would reverse that for commercial property, but not for other types of property. So it would basically introduce a split rural property tax system in California, where it would change the assessment regime just for commercial property, while residential property would still get the benefit of Prop 13. And so this would specifically require commercial property to be reassessed according to market value, starting in fiscal year 2023, and then reassessed every three years thereafter. So commercial property taxes are going to increase quickly and um, year after year in California under this, while residential properties would still benefit from the really uh, low um, assessment ratios and the, the low curtailed rates in California. So this would really pit a couple of different classes of property against each other. It would introduce new inequities into the system. And... <laughs> The property tax, despite some of the problems with Prop 13 and some of the non-neutralities that it does already introduce into the system, Prop 15 doesn't make it any better. It would really only make it worse. And that burden would be borne by the state's businesses at a time when really um, they can least afford to pay it. I think the estimate we've seen is that once it's fully implemented, Prop 15 would end up raising taxes on California businesses by between eight and twelve and a half billion dollars each year. So, and specifically on the state business tax climate index, I think that's an interesting thing. California ranks 49th overall. So one of the worst structured tax systems in the country ahead of only New Jersey. But where California performs relatively well is on the property tax component. And that's in part because California avoids split role taxation. But by introducing split role into California's property tax system and with commercial properties disproportionately bearing that burden, California's property tax ranking would drop from 14th to only 33rd in the country. You know, this puts everyone in an interesting situation because I think a lot of people in public finance really dislike Prop 13. It was the first of the property tax revolt measures uh, that were adopted across the country. When we think of property tax limitations, this was the one that got it started. It's also, unfortunately, one of the ones that got it wrong. There are some really good property tax limitation measures. This is a one with a lot of unintended consequences. It has a lock-in effect where uh, people don't want to change the use of their property or sell their property because they're locked into these really low rates and moving or changing the use of the property will radically increase their property tax burden. It creates enormous inequities where people with basically identical properties pay radically different rates. And at least inadvertently, this is also, I think, discriminatory because you see people who um, may be younger, who have purchased their properties more recently, they're paying more. People who are lower income, um, who might also have just been able to purchase a house, they are you know, paying a higher rate. And you see some racial inequities in this as well. When you think about 
which homes have probably been owned for decades and which ones may not have been. So some real issues with Prop 13. Uh, but like you said, this isn't a solution to a business not really addressing the problems of Prop 13. It's creating a parallel system. And what will happen over time is that as you continue to cap the taxes on residential property, but you uncap commercial property, you'll see a shift towards more and more taxation falling on commercial and it becoming just really difficult to pay your commercial property taxes. Now, people don't think of this as a business tax very often, but the reality is most businesses pay way more in property taxes than they do in other taxes, including corporate income taxes at the state and local level. So I think a really significant thing, and you're not, as you say, addressing those perverse incentives, you're creating a different set of them. And in fact, that's the situation that Colorado has had for a long time. Uh, There's something called the Gallagher Amendment in Colorado. It's been in place since 1982. It's not the same as Prop 13. Instead, it limits residential property to being 45% of the statewide property tax base. The idea was to limit the rate of tax increases on, um, you know, on residential property and shift a little over to commercial. And at the time, that represented something close to the actual split in the value of residential and commercial property. But that's changed dramatically since uh, 1982. There was basically a roughly 30-some percent premium, I think a 38% premium on commercial property when they started this. It's now over a 300% premium. And if nothing changes, next year it will become a 400% premium. And now we see a measure to do something about that. Uh, Catherine, what are you seeing in Colorado with Amendment B? Uh, How would it try to address this? Yeah, this is a really interesting issue in Colorado. So many people in the state are very familiar with the Gallagher Amendment because of how it has limited their property taxes. Um, so substantially over time, Colorado does have one of the best, one of the lowest property tax rates for homeowners in the country. But actually, we're seeing some interest in trying, in even residents themselves wanting to kind of fix some of the problems with the Gallagher Amendment and the unintended consequences it has created by limiting residential property to just 45% of the total base. And so basically what the Gallagher Amendment does is it requires that 45 to 55% split, but then it also sets various assessment ratios in the constitution. So residential property started out at being taxed at 21% of market value while non-residential property at 29%. Um, and then it allowed residential property to be reduced every couple of years. Um, so now residential property is only being assessed at 7.15% of market value. So that's very low and a lot lower than commercial and other non-residential property. And so basically what this amendment do, would do, Amendment B, would remove those requirements from the constitution. But the legislature and the governor did enact a law that would specify that those rates, the current rates of 7.15% and 29% would be frozen in statute, so not in the constitution. And so what that would mean is that they could be reduced anytime by the legislature by a simple majority vote. Um, To increase them again, that would still require a vote of the people because of the Colorado Taxpayer Bill of Rights or TABOR um, that basically requires most state statewide tax and revenue increases to be approved uh, by voters. This has some interesting ramifications for Colorado taxpayers. It would basically just stop the policy that has continued to create more and more inequities every year 
And it doesn't necessarily reverse that. It does freeze the current rates in place, which are still pretty inequitable with commercial property paying a lot more. But over time, we would see residents pick up more of the total cost of property taxes, which overall makes makes a lot of sense. They're the ones benefiting from the schools and the and the roads and the um, local public services just as much as businesses are. So it makes sense to kind of work toward balancing out that burden. What I find really interesting here is that there seems to be significant support by voters, including homeowners, for something that will reduce this continued shift of taxes away from them and towards businesses, which is this recognition that perhaps it's gone too far, um, which you don't always see. Uh, just an interesting thing. We also have four states this year where um, marijuana legalization and taxation is on the ballot. Arizona, Montana, New Jersey, South Dakota. Uh, what sort of rates and structures are they looking at? Three of the states, South Dakota, Arizona, and Montana, are looking at ad valorem excise taxes. And New Jersey is a little different. They're mostly just looking at imposing the sales tax on recreational marijuana state and allowing a local option. And so marijuana would be taxed at a certain percentage of the retail value in those states. The rates look pretty competitive compared to other states that have similarly structured marijuana taxes already. And the revenue productions are, you know, pretty, pretty conservative. We're expecting, you know, $166 million in Arizona, 38 and a half in Montana. So not super large revenue gains. And in Montana, I think it's expected that it'll take several years before any revenue would um, even pay for implementing legalization in the first place. What stood out to me is that three of these are initiated statutes, which means that after a certain period of time, the legislature could adjust them. They could change the rates. They could change the structure. It just gets the ball rolling. Uh, South Dakota, however, it's a constitutional amendment. So when the tax rate there is 15% of retail, it is 15% of retail unless the constitution is later amended. Uh, these are ad valorem taxes, as you mentioned, which is also, it's the way that we've generally seen marijuana taxation approached. Uh, but it's not the way we usually see excise taxes approached. You think about, say, taxes on cigarettes or alcohol or gasoline. Usually it is based on volume. It's a tax per pack of cigarettes, for instance. And you do that because if you're trying to control for or internalize the costs of something, uh, the actual price tag doesn't matter that much. It's the product. And marijuana is tougher because potency matters a lot, but there are ways that states could address that. They could look at THC content. They could look at a number of different things. A lot of them have gone ad valorem. And you sort of have to wonder if they're going to regret that decision down the line, especially if it's in their constitution, if as more states legalize, as perhaps the federal government someday legalizes marijuana and allows uh, interstate commerce here, uh, the price tag plummets. You know, the, the price of marijuana goes way down and suddenly that tax isn't generating nearly as much as they thought. That will be interesting to watch. Now, we have a couple of other tax measures that I think are worth mentioning just very briefly. One of them is an oil production tax increase in Alaska. And no one envies Alaska right now. This is a state that's been just hit incredibly hard. Uh, you know, less than a decade ago, oil and gas taxes, all of them combined, brought in about, in current dollars, $10 billion in revenue out of a $10.6 billion budget, practically everything. Uh, by 2019, it had dropped to $2 billion. It had lost $8 billion, 80%. Uh, this has been a huge issue. So the, the proposal here is some tax increases on production of oil in particularly the North Slope, which is more developmental. Um, there's not nearly as much production there. 
And historically, they've actually given a lot of tax credits to try to encourage that production to come online. So this not only has that been reversed, but there's a proposal to dramatically increase the taxes. Uh, Alaska's unusual here. Most states have a tax on gross production value, uh, whatever the gross price is you tax that. And you usually tax it at a rate of between 4 and about 7% of gross value at the wellhead. Alaska instead does net income, almost like it's a corporate income tax. It's the profits tax, and it can be up to 40%. But they also have a 4% alternative minimum tax on gross value uh, so that it just can't drop below that. So in really bad times, like right now, they're basically at that 4%, whereas some of their peers might be at 5 or 6% because those are their rates. And really good times, they're way higher than their peers. And they haven't balanced that very well. So there's a proposal now to create a new alternative minimum tax on gross price uh, for the North Slope at 10%, rising to 15%. Those are anomalously high. You don't see that really anywhere else in the country. Um, and I think that's a huge concern that you're taking a place that's already really expensive, that has um, only modest production right now and potentially imposing taxes that are twice as high, even three times as high as you see in many other states. Obviously, the state desperately needs revenue. The question is, do you get any revenue if you're imposing taxes like that? Uh, The other one that I think is worth noting, because we might see this in other locations, is San Francisco has Proposition L. It's what's called an excess compensation tax. Portland's the only place that's done this thus far. They're taking an existing local tax, a gross receipts tax, And they are creating surtaxes on top of it um, if the CEO or other people in management have salaries that are sufficiently higher than the median salary in the company. And the rate changes based on how high they go. Uh, This is really complex. I think it's not a good situation for uh, local government to be in, especially when you look at San Francisco, where there's been this drumbeat of new tax proposals. Uh, You're probably not going to change CEO compensation, but you might have some impact on the overall tax climate and the attractiveness of a place like San Francisco, especially as you see a lot more remote work and where yeah, some of the businesses that have historically located in the Bay Area don't feel like they need to have everyone working there anymore. So I think a lot of really interesting ballot measures this year, uh, things that we'll all be following on election night. Uh, Catherine, thank you for talking to us about all of these. And for everyone listening, I hope you'll go to our website, taxfoundation.org on election night and the days after. We're going to be tracking the results and we're going to be doing some further analysis. You can go there right now and read our analysis on all of these and other measures. And you can come follow us on election night and see how they fare. And that wraps up this episode of The Deduction. We'd love to hear what you think about this podcast. Please let us know at taxfoundation.org slash podcast. 